0: And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns.
1: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, LeonGetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 36 in our series of 2022, and today's date is Friday, October the 7th. Today, I'll be talking to Ben Gill, Head of Asia Pacific Brainbox AI, about Brisbane Airport expanding the use of AI to reduce emissions, which marks Brisbane Airport as the first in the world international airport to leverage this technology for reducing energy consumption and achieving sustainability targets. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Avery about the collapsing pound, the struggles of the RBA and the prospect of a global recession. But now let's talk to Ben Gill. Ben, tell us about Brisbane Airport Corporation. They're doing the world first using your technology.
2: Yeah, correct, mate. They're the first uh, international airport corporation to use AI to reduce their emissions to the best of our knowledge. Uh, So it's it's quite an achievement by them. They've got a progressive uh, asset optimization team there led by Anu Anu and Derek. And so it's great. It's a great opportunity for us, a great opportunity for them.
1: And uh, so how, how does it work?
2: Yeah, AI is the tool we use. Ultimately, the problem we're trying to solve is to obviously reduce emissions. Property, including airports, but commercial property, et cetera, is probably the second largest emitter globally behind agriculture. And what we aim to do, particularly in that space, is we aim at commercial property and existing buildings. So there's a whole lot of technology for new buildings. Um, Existing buildings is where we aim because that's where the majority of the emissions are. What the AI actually does, Leon, I, I think you'll really like this. I've listened to a number of your podcasts. You seem to be very interested in the AI. We're able to predict internal temperatures with a confidence interval greater than 95%. On some sites, mate, it gets up to 99% and ask yourself, when we were, when were you last 99% sure of something? So effectively, once we know something's going to happen, we can effectively see into the future. And that means we can start turning things off, down, up, or sideways. So without any human intervention, the AI will actually go ahead and make changes to the HVAC to your air conditioning and heating. Um, in the building. And ultimately, you can do it smarter and quicker than what we can as humans. So what sort of
1: decreases in heating, Air conditioning and ventilation systems. Would
2: there be? Yeah, so we can see anywhere between five percent up to twenty-five percent. It really depends on the type of building, the climate that they're in, the operational conditions. Something that's running twenty-four-seven, like a hospital, is a is a, a smaller opportunity because you've just got to keep going. Commercial buildings, shopping centres, these op these have have greater opportunities. So it's really material, right? That's a that's a it's a big number, and we know that. Heating, ventilation, and air con is perhaps 50, sometimes up to 70% of the energy use for the, for these buildings. So really significant. So how did you develop the technology for this? I wish I developed it. I wish I was the owner of Brain Box. I, I'm not. I had up our Asia-Pacific region um, by all means. absolutely. So it, it's done by our, our team out of Montreal. So we've got about 150 employees globally now. The Most of the development is done by a team in Canada and Montreal. Look, it's the collection of a hell of a lot of smart people and then good leadership getting them flowing in the right direction. So to run through that uh, as an example, we have building engineers, we have software developers, we have what I will call our AI architect nerds. These guys have have brains upon brains and we have an ecosystem team. We have a, a data streams team. Uh, I guess I'm just trying to illustrate the many various elements you have to have to bring this all together. Now, it's, Leon, it's a really interesting thing to consider how you could do this with humans and you can you can ultimately do what we do with humans if you had a building engineer you had a data scientist or and you had a mechanical engineer and you sat them next to each other and they communicated perfectly 24 hours a day you're able to do it the challenge is most of us need to sleep most of us want to get paid you know, x amount um, and so it becomes uneconomic to do these things. When you can do it via AI, we're, we're actually able to achieve emissions drops that others aren't.
1: This is fascinating. I mean, airports are significant users of energy, but uh, could actually expand this to a whole lot of other buildings. I mean, you mentioned hospitals. Etc.
2: Yeah. So you, you walk around the, the major CBDs of the world and often we take the built form for granted. We're just walking and we're doing our shopping and we're grabbing our coffee. When you start to think about the ecosystems that live within these buildings and the way build, buildings can actually interact with each other, whether that be shade lines or whether that be shared power, shared cooling. We see that in Singapore with precinct cooling. You see that in, in other markets. And something that we're just dipping our toes into now is how these buildings can trade energy with each other. Things like peak demand and, and sharing that that arrangements. Starting to see cities more of an ecosystem and, and interconnected. They're obviously interconnected when we think about traffic and pedestrian movements. I think the use of energy and uh, around that uh, network is is coming to the fore. We're seeing that more and more.
1: Well, AI would be quite critical because it would provide cities and buildings with the data for them to share and reduce, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, I think if you come one layer up and you and you start to think about movements through society. And which things are sort of on the increase and those that are those are that are perhaps waning. I would suggest to you that AI, I'm obviously paid to say so, but frankly I I believe it. AI is one of those that is going to keep increasing. There are many, many forms of AI. What we use is deep learning, which is a predictive tool. There's robotics, there's a whole stack of other conversations we could have, a whole nother podcast I imagine. But what we are uh, what we are doing using deep learning and various frameworks is to predict. It's really difficult. it, you know, it is a very, very acquired skill set. skill set takes a lot of practice, takes an enormous amount of patience to data cleanse. Most people think that the data just comes to you clean, of course it doesn't. So AI will play an enormous role in many, many aspects of society, pleasingly in reduction of emissions. We're, we're happy, to, happy to help in that and we're seeing it having an increased role.
1: So, are you actually talking to other kinds of businesses, other building sites?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, we're in market now in most, well, all, almost all states of Australia. Um, we have inst- installations. I'm just thinking about whether we've got every state covered. I don't have any in Tasmania. I would love one in Tasmania. Uh, but we've got Australia covered otherwise. We are operating now obviously in Canada, North America, and we're pushing into Asia, Asia more. So Asia is an interesting market. You've got very mature economies like Singapore, Japan. Then you have let's call them middle but so large being India and then others that we probably won't play in yet the maturity isn't quite there yet but it's a really uh, really dynamic market actually it's significant that you chose an airport for this yeah look we, we've experimented we know we've got proven technology in commercial buildings office towers we know it in shopping centers we know it in universities we know it in k-12 to schooling um, this is the first time that you've seen a, an airport operator do it Sometimes it comes down to less about the building, Leon, and more about the attitude of individuals. Ultimately, we are asking people to give up a little bit of control in what they're doing and to let the AI make decisions. And And people can embrace that and people can go, oh, that makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. So part of my job and my team's job, we have a great team out there, is putting in place the, the procedures and also the trust and the confidence for those people to say, hey, you're okay to let go of this wheel. We've got these limitations in. We've got these guide rails. Now let, let go let's let the maths take over and, and work out these complicated sums. Does that does that make sense?
1: Yes, yes, yeah. But that would require a lot of persuasion for, for some companies uh, and some IT departments are reluctant to let go.
2: Yeah, for some it does, for some it does. So we we invariably have a cyber security conversation with them at all times. Even if the customer doesn't prompt it, we we prompt it because we want to be assured and we want to assure them that we encrypt all our data at all times. And in fact, we've given buildings up and not gone into buildings because the technology isn't right. We can't guarantee the cyber, so we go hands off. It's not never, it's just not now because these things have to happen. So that's an important important part of our process. And I would suggest that most landlords out there would would be appreciative of that.
1: What's, What's interesting here is to what extent do you let them control the data, the algorithms and everything like that?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So, data ownership, data governance is a key to to what we do. The, let's let's be really candid. The building owner's data is the building da- owner's data, and it remains it remains theirs forever. That's important. the The aspect that is probably slightly misunderstood is what data looks like. I like to think about it as water, right? And By that, I mean, it's often dirty. It needs filtering. It needs sanitization. It certainly needs plumbing. You know, you need to have storage for it. And we spend a lot of our time, a lot of our time at what I would call the very high end, top of the the pyramid AI stuff. And as you go down the pyramid, the amount of work that you have to do to get that data sanitized and ready and mapped and tagged is actually enormous. So part of our role, is sort of, I guess, acting as a Sherpa with the client to go, hey, you've got all this data, let's plug into it, let's understand it, but now let's put it in a format in which it can be used by ourselves or, in fact, others, you know, for the future. Ben, thank you very much for your time. That's fantastic. Anytime, Leon. We'd love to chat further. Thanks, Mike.
1: And now let's talk to a rubber bank economist, Michael Ivery. Tell us about the pound. It's collapsed to a record low and coincides with probably Liz Truss's uh, popular polling ratings. Yeah, well, let me just pat myself on the back
0: a little bit here, if I may. All year, I've been repeating the same message over and over again, that against a constricted structural supply shortage or a supply shock across the economy, if we saw developed markets, what we call DM, try and pivot to cut interest rates or not, raise interest rates aggressively, we would see them being treated by the markets as emerging markets or EM. So my meme was DM equal EM now. What we've seen in the UK has not been an interest rate pivot. In fact, very much the opposite. The market is now pricing and interest rates in the UK will have to be significantly higher than they originally expected they were going to be. What we are seeing instead is that if you cut Taxes really aggressively and try and say, hey, it's back to asset bubbles and the 1980s. Here we go. When you're running a large trade deficit and a large fiscal deficit, and basically foreigners are the ones who are going to be funding both of them, your currency gets absolutely smashed. So we've seen the kind of move in sterling that you generally see historically in what would have been considered wobbly emerging markets. We're seeing the kind of macroeconomic policies you would have in rather fantastical wobbly emerging markets. And I don't want anyone for a second to think this is a UK-specific problem relating just to Liz Truss, or just to Brexit or just to this energy crisis. It does, of course, reflect all of those. But frankly, this can happen to any one of us amongst developed markets. In fact, I'd say Australia is riding for a fall too, the way that the RPA is acting. But it, it completely underlines what a different world we're in now and how so many of our policymakers in what are quote unquote DM are acting and are being punished as if they were in quote unquote EM. So they're acting. as like emerging markets. Well, the market is punishing them as if they are. Might look, the emerging markets are generally defined by a certain GDP per capita income threshold. And of course, you're talking about you know the UK here, which by no definition fits into that. But if you look at issues of inequality, which have been building up for you know for a generation or two, uh, if you look at over reliance on asset bubbles rather than actual productive. Growth and investment. If you look at that trade position, as I was referring to, if you look at the fiscal position, if you look at government debt, if you look at how populist politics has become, if you look at the lack of control of supply chains, effective deindustrialization over many years, and at the lack of control over commodity prices, it starts to tick a hell of a lot of boxes, which is why I've been. Arguing this all year. Now, if we are to see other countries start to pursue equally idiotic policies, and I pivot back for you know listeners of your podcast in particular, because I know that you know you're such a listened-to voice in Australia. Australia is not immune to this in any way, shape or form. You take all the same boxes, apart from the fact that your debt is a bit lower, your fiscal deficit is is a bit lower, your inflation is a bit lower. You do have commodities, although you don't add any value to them, and you sell them offshore rather than relying on them at home. You've had your own energy crises in places too. But if you get the RBA coming along and starting to say to everyone, well, don't worry, rates have nearly peaked at two and a half (coughs) percent because housing market, (coughs) because (coughs) housing market, welcome to the emerging market club. You too have special magical vested interests you can't touch to keep special magical wealthy people wealthy on paper only and all macroeconomic stability and sense out the the window because it's far more important to save those vested interests. And if that's the route you're going to go, you will see the Aussie dollar with a five handle. And you will see much higher rates because rates are going to continue to march higher anyway, globally. Uh, and as in the UK, they will be forced higher by the collapse in the currency.
1: But uh, rates are rising right
0: around the world. Yeah, central banks. are doing. Well, they are. But they are absolutely. But if you listen to the rhetoric, one of the banks that frankly gets it the least, that has the least idea about what's going on, that is least hawkish. And is, is most dovish and is doing everything it can to talk down expectations that there's an aggressive hiking cycle, while also pledging to do whatever it takes, quote unquote, is the RBA who have you know all the current market credibility of a chocolate teapot. So if they're going to continue down that, down that route rather than learning the lesson from the UK here, the lesson from the the Ricks Bank, which do, which had a hundred basis point hike, uh, even the ECB doing seventy five. If they're talking about where we're going to shift back to 25 basis point steps soon, as if we're in a 25 basis point monetary policy environment globally, when the rumor was America was going to do 100 this month and is definitely going to do another 75 again. Yeah, then you're going to have a five handle on the Aussie dollar and then you're going to have much higher imported inflation because you don't make anything. You import almost everything. So that would mean the RBA would have to keep pace with all the other rate rises around the world. Welcome to the real world, RBA. Welcome to the real world. They don't want to accept that they're not in control of it. They will never publicly come out and say, we are being taken for a ride here by what's going on structurally in the global economy. That's what I was telling all my clients when I was down in Australia in August. If you think the RBA is in control of this, you know, you're on some. But if that is what is going to be the global backdrop, and for now, that is absolutely the global backdrop, they are delusional, delusional if they think that they can call a peak because that's what suits Sydney or Melbourne housing prices.
1: Can't happen, right. won't happen. Okay, so they'll have, to, they'll have to keep raising rates in keeping with the rest of the world to support the dollar. They'll have to. And I mean, I
0: think deep down inside they know it, but they know if they say it, you're going to get even more of a panic in the housing market. But I don't see how that can be avoided. Look, the UK is every bit as addicted to property as Australia. As someone who grew up there. You know, it's just as much of a religion there as it is, as it is in Oz. They're now talking about the BOE or the market this morning right now as I'm talking to you. So afternoon Australia time, late, after, late afternoon. Uh, Asia time too. They're looking at a 5.75% peak in the Bank of England base rate, much higher than it was previously, 5.75. And they're expecting some of that might have to come in a surprise emergency into meeting hike, maybe of as much as 100 basis points. If that is not a warning to you, and to any government thinking we can just basically paper over the cracks, being caused by high inflation, and being caused by structural shortages in energy supply, which we didn't foresee coming, and we're now caught short in regards to... If they think they can just bail everybody out, as we did in 2008, with lower rates, lower yields, QE, make everything good, kick the can down the road, you know, financial engineering, they've got another thing coming. That's not how the real world works. And we're seeing that playing out now in real time in the UK. So basically, the real world is caught up with all the central banks, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, the real world cannot be manipulated magically by interest rate that doesn't mean if america doesn't do something on interest rates it doesn't flow back and affect the real world for example with america continuing to hike rates so aggressively and everyone else being forced to follow you are now seeing commodity prices come down sharply right which again is negative to the aussie dollar that's part of what they want to achieve which is again what i was telling clients in august because if they do that pipeline inflation, pipeline inflation pressures ease so does aussie growth uh, so does the aussie dollar which is inflationary for you but that's the only mechanism by which it works you can't make everybody good For example, you can't bail out everyone because energy prices have gone up if you don't have energy. You are literally borrowing or printing money to give people electric money, electronic money to continue purchasing things as usual to pretend they are as wealthy as they used to be when the price of energy has gone up tenfold. Well, what's your your view of
1: uh, Liz Truss's
0: tax cuts? I don't want to kind of kind of be overly directly political in terms of picking a side here. right? I I genuinely, genuinely admire the fact that they're saying we need to be radical. I think everyone needs to be radical right now, which is one of the reasons why the RBA is is wrong. And I do genuinely think that they're right to say that we need new thinking. Where I think they are misguided is in the fact that they still believe that the 1980s ethos of cutting taxes is how you get out of a supply-side shortage, because all that does is boost demand. Now, if you cut taxes, how is that going to put money into the sectors of the economy, like energy, in particular, nuclear energy in particular, let's say, that need to grow? How is it going to put money into the defence sector? Although defence spending will increase to 3% of GDP, which again, something Australia will have to follow. How is it going to increase infrastructure? How is it going to increase industrialisation of all the products that we're currently importing and are vulnerable because we don't produce? And the answer is it can't. People will consume, which is via imports, or they will speculate via housing prices. I, I don't care what your economic theory says. It's wrong. We have decades... Of heuristics now, you can hear the aggravation in my voice, because I, I believed this before it happened, because I come from a heterodox school. And I, and I absolutely believed this would be the case and argued it and been proved right again and again, that you will not get any useful response by cutting taxes, particularly for rich people. You just blow asset bubbles, which are useless at fighting a supply side shock. Because they just create the wrong kind of supply, i.e. housing or equity. And they do nothing in terms of actually bringing down inflation. They exacerbate it, if anything. Completely the wrong response to the problem.
1: It's, uh, it's almost a return to Reaganomics. It is. But this
0: isn't. And we do have a Cold War and we have a hot war. Right. But, you know, Russia Russia has just mobilized. Now, they're doing it in a typically cack-handed, idiotic Russian fashion. Uh, you know, you, you can all see that in the news. I don't think it will work the way they want it to. Military experts agree with me, although I'm deferring to them on that. And I think it's going to be disastrous for Russia in the long run. But it's nonetheless a clear signal this war in Ukraine is not going to end anytime soon, that we're locked and loaded and we're there to the very bitter end. So this is now being portrayed as liberal democracy versus autocracy, a clash of the titans, a clash of the systems. Russia has just said we're going to go to a war economy, probably by the end of the week, by martial law, closing the borders, exit visas only, etc., etc. None of this would be a surprise right now. My Russian friends expect it. What do we do? Let's get let's have higher house prices. Right. I mean, you you know, really, again, please hear the exasperation in my voice. And I know you've you've heard me be exasperated before. You don't win a bloody war. or with house prices that's not what winston churchill said and i think i gave you that quote last time we spoke blood toil tears and sweat and sacrifice you need to reallocate resources within the economy and work out what do you need more of now how do we get it now who can deliver it most efficiently probably the private sector do they have the capital for it yes are they doing anything useful with it no force them to force them to mandate them to or the state does it but does it via the the private sector? Of course, that is a technical definition of corporatism or fascism. Absolutely, that is. That's what a war economy looks like. But no, what are we going to do? Give the money to rich people and say, go spend on whatever. It's no wonder the pound melts down. I mean, again, this is my view, and I'm a heterodox thinker. You know, I've been very critical of the global system for a very long time. And none of what's happening is a surprise, even if it's still shocking to see it play out in real time. But even the markets themselves now, so the guys in the city of London who have just been given a tax cut, are the ones speculating against the pound and saying this doesn't work? What more signal do you need that we need new thinking? The cast of the world's heading for a recession with this. <laughs> How is it not? How is it not? I mean, America is wobbling and parts of the American economy are clearly going to be hit hard. And that's the plan. That is the plan. Openly stated by the Fed. By yeah. I'm right getting no surprise. How else are you going to get inflation down? By magic? No, you reduce demand, obviously. At the same time, we're not seeing an American supply response, except in a few key sectors where we are seeing a big government plan to boost semiconductor output, for example. Yeah. Um, something on energy, well, it's a bit unclear exactly what, but it's better than what some people are doing. Um, you know, so something from a Trump era legacy, something from a Biden, uh, you know, what will be his legacy, something moving along those lines, even if it's not completely clear. Just one one quick point on that, by the way, if I may, and I'm sure we'll come back to this in a future conversation. I've got a wonderful document I'm reading now by the War Production Board, which was uh, what ran the American economy between 1941 and 1945. And they proudly admit, in the run-up to World War II, so we're even talking in 1940, America produced 3 million cars a year. 3 million. Do you know, Leon, how many cars America produced in total between 1941 and 1945? Please have a guess. Total, over the four-year period. You tell me. 139. What do you think they did with all that industrial capacity? They put it into the war effort. Into the war effort, of course. Yes. Now, we don't have that industrial capacity because we offshored it because we're so clever. But there is still capacity within the economy to do lots of different things.
1: Right. Okay. And if
0: we think asset bubbles are the way to go, even if that generates GDP growth in the near term, you know, at the expense of more debt and inequality and imbalances, we're mad. Okay. We are mad. That's not how we're going to win anything. Now, you said it's Reaganomics. Reaganomics actually did win the Cold War by doing exactly that. Bigger right. deficits, more debt, consumer spending. And the Soviet economy couldn't match it. We're not up against the Soviet economy. We're up against economies that have a con- control over supply of commodities for us at the margin or, or China, which absolutely can produce as much as anything as it needs. They've got no problem pumping out stuff. We're the ones that do that, that, I, that. I have to say this and I say it to you in the hope that influential people are listening to it. Just beggars belief that people don't understand something as fundamental as this. But we seem to be the blind led by the blind at the moment when anyone with as a basic textbook the ability to think outside the box just a little bit beyond neoliberalism to actually read a little bit of heterodox history and heterodox economic thought would be able to predict all of this you know i don't claim to have a particularly high iq but i saw most of this coming and you can see what's going to come next and it's not good unless we pivot in the right direction soon And tax cuts ain't that pivot and stopping rate increases in australia to save the housing market ain't that pivot
1: well michael Thank you very, very much for those
0: insights. Thank you very much for the time. And as, as they say, in one of the countries I was stuck in uh, during COVID, uh, you know, excuse me, using my own mouth there, they say from your mouth to God's ear. But <laughs> okay.
1: From your mouth, Leon, from your mouth, Leon, to God's ear, I hope. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the government of British Prime Minister Liz Truss was forced into a humiliating U-turn on Monday, reversing plans to cut the highest rate of income tax that helped to spark a rebellion in her party and turmoil in financial markets. Ms Trust and finance minister, Kwasi Kwarteng, announced a new growth plan on September 23rd that would cut taxes and regulation, funded by vast government borrowing to snap the economy out of years of stagnant growth. The plan to cut the top rate of income tax from 45% to 40% had been heavily criticised from all corners, with more than a dozen Tory MPs going on the record to voice their concerns about the move. The rebellion among Tory backbenchers forced the Chancellor to U-turn on his flagship policy, and on Monday announced that the controversial tax cut would be scrapped. The plans to abolish the 45% tax rate on incomes above £150,000 a year had caused anger during the cost-of-living crisis. The plan also triggered a crisis of confidence in the government, hammering the value of the pound and government bond prices and jolting global markets to such an extent that the Bank of England had to intervene with a £65 billion, that's £112 billion Aussie, program to settle the gilt market. Truss has reversed plans to scrap the 45% rate of income tax for the UK's highest earners. The move is a major reversal for Truss's government, which has been in office for just a month. The scrapping of the 45% rate for the highest earners had been the least popular measure, coming at a time when ordinary Brits are struggling in a cost-of-living crisis that's seen inflation surge to 40-year highs. The decision to reverse course is likely to put Ms Truss and Mr Kwarteng under huge pressure less than four weeks after they came to power. Britain has had four Prime Ministers in the last six to politically turbulent years. And Elon Musk has revised his bid for Twitter at the original offer price of 54 dollars 20 that's $83.45 Aussie, a share, potentially avo- avoiding a courtroom fight over the most contentious acquisitions in recent histories. Musk made the proposal in a letter to Twitter, according to a filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Shares in Twitter have climbed as much as 18% on the news, and trading has since been halted. Musk's offer to match the original deal terms means Twitter is facing a future under the leadership of a mercurial billionaire who has spent months publicly criticising its management, questioning its value and changing his mind. It also means that his contested claims that Twitter was lying about which percentage of users were bots, for instance, are not likely to be scrutinised in a courtroom. Musk had been trying for months to back out of his contract to acquire Twitter signed in April. The billionaire began showing signs of buyer's remorse shortly after the deal was announced, alleging that Twitter had misled him about the size of its user base and the prevalence of automated accounts known as bots. Musk formally quit the accord in July, and Twitter sued him in Delaware Chancery Court to force him to go forward with the purchase. A trial is scheduled to begin on October 17. And at their October board meeting, the RBA hiked rates by 25 basis points, increasing the cash rate to 2.6%. It marks a sixth consecutive rate rise this year and returns the cash rate to its highest level since July 2013. The fact they hike by 25 basis points rather than 50 basis points is a sign that they're getting closer to a pause in rates. Typically, the RBA will use a pause to assess economic conditions and determine how policy changes are impacting the economy. And Treasurer Jim Chalmers has heightened concerns about the $243 billion cost of a stage three tax cut for workers on higher incomes, while cabinet ministers put their plans under the spotlight after financial turmoil forced a rethink of similar cuts in the United Kingdom. Vowing to put economic priorities ahead of politics, Chalmers said the government had not changed its tax policy, but warned the storm clouds in the global economy were a major factor in looming decisions on tax and spending. The ferocious response from the financial markets to the UK policy, which forced British Prime Minister Liz Truss to drop the tax cuts less than a week after they were unveiled, was discussed in an expenditure review committee meeting of federal cabinet ministers on Tuesday. It is not irrelevant to us because it is a cautionary tale about what can happen if you get your policy settings out of whack in a way that does not suit the economic conditions and particularly the global economic conditions, Chalmers said. There's no consensus in Federal Cabinet of, on whether to change the stage tax cuts because Labor voted for them in 2021 and promised to keep them when it campaigned at this year's election. But the shock to the British government has strengthened the case within Cabinet to reconsider the package. The stage 3 tax cuts are legislated to begin in July 2024 and abolish the 37% tax rate and apply a 30% rate to all income between $45,000 and $200,000. One option for the government is to limit the benefits for cuts to workers on lower incomes. And Treasurer Jim Chalmers says the recession risk in many major economies had tipped from possible to probable, as leading economists said the decline in global conditions, volatility in financial markets and rapidly rising interest rates would make it harder for Australia to escape a downturn. Economists said a recession was now a plausible scenario, especially if the Reserve Bank of Australia raises too far. Australia's central bank had already raised a cash rate from 0.1% to 2.35% since May as it tries to rein in inflation spurred by global factors and a booming jobs market and persistent spending at home. And tensions between Optus and the Albanese government have deepened in the wake of the telco's massive data breach with Labor accusing the company's leadership of not cooperating over lost Medicare and Centrelink information. At least 2.1 million personal identification details including 150,000... Passport and 50,000 Medicare numbers have been stolen in the Optus data hack. The federal government has accused telco Singtel Optus of dragging its feet on providing full details of users whose data was compromised in a data breach, which a telco reported on the 22nd of September. Government services minister Bill Shorten told a media conference in Melbourne on Sunday morning that a request on the 27th of September had sought more details about the Medicare and Centelink data that had been leaked in the data breach. More than a week after Optus revealed 9.8 million customers had their personal information stolen through historic failure by the government, Government Services Minister Bill Shorten said requests for help by Services Australia had gone unanswered. After first asking Optus to cooperate by supplying the information last Tuesday, Mrs. Shorten and Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill said the request was yet to be met, limiting help for Australians needing new Medicare and concession cards. Optus rejected the criticism, saying it was seeking advice regarding customers whose documents had since expired. The leak of more than 10,000 individuals' details as part of an attempt to ransom Optus included more than 3,200 driver's licences, 151 overseas passports, 110 passports, 55 Medicare cards, 55 proof-of-age cards, 41 photo photo cards and 31 learner's driver's licences. Optus has revealed more than 37,000 Medicare numbers were exposed in the data breach. About 15,000 are active. Last week, Optus buckled to Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's demand to cover the cost of new passports, adding to the company's mounting costs after agreed to reimburse people for replacements driver's licence. Ms O'Neill, who has rejected the company's claim that the breach was a sophisticated cyber attack, said Optus should communicate clearly to the government and their customers about exactly what information had been taken. She said emails to 10,200 people whose data was posted online was insufficient. The group has been advised to urgently update their information. And Finance Minister Katie Gallagher has called together all the digital ministers to kickstart the rollout of a national identity system amid calls for the government to build a new technology infrastructure that would reduce the risk of identity theft following the Optus data breach. It comes as New South Wales Customs Service Minister Victor Dominello called for a decentralised identity system and the end of paper-based ID. The Optus breach has highlighted the need for a national digital identity system that would make it easier for businesses to verify a person's identity and eliminate the need for companies to collect licence and passport numbers in the first place. Canberra has established a digital identity system to streamline access to government services such as Medicare tax off underpinned by the MyGov website, but legislation that was drafted by the Morrison government still needs to be passed to allow the digital ID to be used more broadly by the private sector. Ms Gallagher said the digital identity legislation and related issues will be discussed by relevant Commonwealth, State and Territory Ministers at the upcoming Data and Digital Ministers meeting in November. An Optus has commissioned an external review of how the personal data of 10 million customers was exposed in a cyber attack that has embroiled the telecommunications giant in a brawl with the federal government. The company announced a review to be conducted by consultancy Deloitte will look at the cybersecurity systems, controls, processes and the circumstances surrounding the theft. In a statement, the company said the review was recommended by Optus' chief executive, Kelly Bayer Rosmarin and supported by the board of Optus' parent company, the Singaporean telecommunications conglomerate, Singtel. Both have faced criticism for their handling and communications, or lack thereof, around the hack. And Woolworths Holding has confirmed that it is actively exploring options for the possible sale of David Jones, telling its investors there would be no further flow of capital from South Africa, as a chain must stand on its own feet. In a note to shareholders in the retailer's latest annual report, Woolworths' chief executive, Roy Bagatani, said that after years of investment, restructures and paying down debt, it was time to reconsider David Jones' future. In August, Mr Bagatani revealed for the first time that it's considering the sale of 184-year-old retailer David Jones after it bought the chain for $2.1 billion in 2014. Woolworths had previously distanced itself from reports that it was mulling the sale and had held discussions with interested parties and investment banks as part of the process. But at the company's full-year results presentation to investors, Mr Bagatani said the future ownership of David Jones was on the table. And property prices are continuing to decrease nationally as higher interest rates bite, with capital city housing markets falling by up to 6% in the past three months. Core logic data shows that in September, properties were sold for 1.4% less on average nationally than in August. The only capital city that didn't witness a monthly fall was Darwin, with values dropping 1.8% in Sydney and by almost as much in Brisbane and Canberra. Sydney's property market has now dived 6.1% in the past three months, while Hobart and Canberra have also shaved off 45 and 4.4% respectively. And there might be another streaming platform heading to Australia's shores to compete with a menu of options already crowded with the likes of Amazon Prime, Binge, Disney+, Plus, Netflix and Stan. Seven West Media, owner of Channel 7, appears to be in the box seat to win free-to-wear broadcast rights to US media giant NBC's Universal Content, one of the most sought-after catalogues left on the market. The NBCU rights include original program from the TV and movie giant and UK Sky Studios. It is believed to be the biggest catalogue in this market in terms of volume, which includes fan favourites like Law & Order, The Office, Parks & Recreation, Brooklyn 99 and Downton Avenue. As part of the negotiation, Seven is believed to be seeking the option to launch NBCU's streaming platform called Peacock as a commercial partner. The potential result would ratchet up the competition between 7 and 9 entertainment holdings which currently holds the NBCU rights across free-to-air, Channel 9 and subscription-based streaming platform Stan. And Latitude Financial Services and Harvey Norman are being sued by the corporate regulator over advertisements that promoted no-deposit interest-free payment methods which allegedly didn't disclose that customers could only use that payment method if they applied for and used a Latitude Go Mastercard. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission alleges that these ads from January 2020 to August 2021 were misleading because they did not disclose these terms. ASIC also alleges the true cost of using the Latitude Go Mastercard was misrepresented as establishment fees and account service fees were not adequately disclosed. ASIC said customers who signed up for Latitude Go MasterCard between March 16, 2021 and August 2021 and used the 60-month interest-free payment method were liable for $537 in fees on top of the purchase amount. ASIC seeks declarations, pecuniary penalties injunctions and other orders against Latitude and Harvey Norman. A first court date is yet to be set. And Penfolds and Wolf Blass owner of Treasury Wine Estates says about 45% consumers are looking for more health-conscious options in wine and it will accelerate its push into lower alcohol and no-alcohol wine. The company said it is part of a global trend that shows no sign of stopping and the under-35-year-old age group is leading the moderation charge. Treasury Wines said on Tuesday it aimed to be a global leader in low-alcohol and no-alcohol wine and it was investing heavily in technology and systems to make it taste better. The flagship wines and the group's portfolio in this segment are a lower-alcohol version of its mature brand called Mature Lighter and a no-alcohol version of Wolf Blass called Wolf Blass Zero. It also introduced a lower-alcohol version of its squealing pig brand. Research showed the conscious consumer segment was continuing to grow around the world, with almost half consumers looking for more health-conscious options. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Oleg Vornick, CEO of Drone Shield, a company that has created local, high-tech jobs creating a pathway for grads to get into complex engineering, AI, sensor fusion and building advanced technologies in the form of counter-drone systems right out of Sydney. These protect everything from critical infrastructure to sporting events to airports and more. And I'll be talking to ComSec Chief Economist Craig James about what's ahead in the market next week. In the meantime, you catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well.